Hello, thank you for clicking this button today. I am truly so glad that you're here. I pray and I believe that God wants to encounter you right now, whatever you're doing, wherever you are, however you're engaging with this, listening or watching, this is gonna be a special moment we'll share together. And please stay connected, send your comments. If you wanna see what's going on at the church, you can go to our website or download our app to see all the activities coming up here. The, the end of the summertime and fall. And at the end of this message, Pastor KJ and I will be here talking to Pastor Alan about this message. So stick around and let's enjoy that time together. Here's Pastor Alan with the message today. Enjoy. Hey, Christ community, it is so good to uh, be with you today. I recently read this fascinating article in the Wall Street Journal about the various um, voices that people choose on their navigation apps. I mean, we all love our navigation apps that help us get to where we want to go. And most of those apps, on most of those apps, you can we can choose the kind of voice that is giving us directions. And sometimes people don't like the voice that's on there. So this article quoted Buck Showalter, who's the manager of the New York Mets. And he went on a tangent in a televised press conference a couple months ago about the voice on his Waze app. He said, you know, the guy with the English accent was really ticking me off, very smug and like, missed it again. So he switched to the voice of Cookie Monster. Uh, a pastor in LA cho had chosen the voice of Mr. T. Uh, he liked kind of a no-nonsense voice to help him navigate California traffic. But eventually he, sw he switched back because Mr. T was just a little bit too much. Uh, and then there was a person who explained why she turns the volume down on any voice command. She said, nobody is the boss of me. Um, you know, that says a lot about human nature, doesn't it? We, we don't want anyone telling us what to do. Now, all of that is okay. It's not a big deal when it comes to navigation apps, but what is the impact when this attitude creeps into our spiritual lives? That's a really important question. What do we do when Jesus calls us to things that are difficult and challenging, things that in our flesh we don't want to do? Often our tendency is to just switch to Cookie Monster, right? To listen to other voices. We, we want a, a mild, tame Jesus who can fix our problems and soothe our pain, but not a Jesus who would make demands on our lives. So then when following him gets too difficult, we're out. Well, this is exactly what we see happening in John chapter six, which is the passage we find ourselves in today in our journey through the book of John. As we've seen the past few weeks, the first part of John chapter six is all about a Jesus who feeds the 5,000 and then calms a storm and he proclaims himself to be the bread of life, to be the very thing that our souls long for and need. It's this beautiful invitation. But the deeper you explore the words of Jesus, you begin to realize that it is also an invitation to a radically different life orientation. Jesus isn't interested in simply helping us in our storms. He is interested in so much more. But the question is, are we interested in that? For most of the people in John 6, the answer was no. In John 6, we see Jesus starting with a large crowd, but by the time he is done, there are only a few followers left, all because of what Jesus was teaching. I was actually tempted to call this sermon, How Not to Grow a Church, uh, because that's exactly what we see here. We see Jesus calling a large group of people to follow him in a particular way, and most of them say no. So Jesus grows his church from 5,000 people to a handful of people. Um, in our culture, we consider that to be a colossal failure, but it wasn't to Jesus. 
It was actually clarifying who's in, who's not, who's serious about following me, and who's not. Now, the, the question raised in this passage in John chapter 6, th- those questions are incredibly relevant for any of us who call ourselves Christians. Are we willing to be challenged by Jesus? Are we willing to be offended by Jesus? Are we willing to be made uncomfortable? Well, if so, let's buckle up and dive in. If you have your Bible or Bible app, feel free to turn to John 6, beginning in verse 41. This whole chapter up to this point has been a vivid demonstration of Jesus being the bread of life, feeding 5,000, calming a storm, urging people to trust him for eternal life. And the crowd, they're asking questions, they're listening to Jesus' teaching. It's all been good up to this point, but something shifts in verse 41. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven. See, the people start grumbling about Jesus. Now, this word grumbling, John uses here, is a very loaded word in the Bible. By using this word, John is intentionally linking what's happening here to some very significant things that happened in the Old Testament. During the Exodus, after God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, so after he miraculously delivers them, the people begin to grumble about not having food. So God gave them manna from heaven. He gave them bread. But soon after that, right as they were getting ready to enter into this amazing land that God promised, they start grumbling again about the size of the people in the land and how it's going to be really, really hard to conquer them. And that grump, conquer them, conquer them. And that, and that grumbling does not go over well with God. After all the miracles he had done in rescuing them from Egypt, they still didn't trust him. They grumbled, they complained. And God said, enough, enough. You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until this generation of grumblers has died. I mean, that's how God feels about grumbling. Grumbling is like a spiritual poison that infects our hearts and it does huge spiritual damage because it fosters unbelief. It cultivates an atmosphere of self-absorption and negativity, which is why Jesus immediately confronts it. Verse 43, stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. Just stop it. Why? Because Jesus knows the spiritual damage it causes. All right, so what are these people grumbling about? They're grumbling about Jesus' claim to have come down from heaven. I mean, they knew this Jesus. He grew up in that area. They know his mom. They knew his dad. This is homeboy Jesus, right? What's he talking about? Coming down from heaven. We know where he came from. He played with our kids. We know where he came from. So Jesus answers them, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will, which I will give for the life of the world. 
See, notice they're grumbling about the identity of Jesus. They're perfectly okay with him being a rabbi or being a prophet. They're even okay with him being king, right? Earlier in this chapter, we saw these people wanted to make him king. They, wanted a, they had a political agenda for Jesus. But what they weren't okay with was his claim to be from heaven. He is claiming an authority that they're not comfortable with. He is claiming to be God. Now, earlier in John chapter 5, we saw Jesus making this claim to the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and they didn't like it. They wanted to kill him. But now we see Jesus making this claim up north in Galilee, in his hometown region, where he grew up, which tells us that this claim isn't just for the religious elite. This claim is for everyone. It is for all of us. This is a claim that all of us have to wrestle with. If we are interested in believing in Jesus, that means we are believing in a Jesus who claims absolute authority in our lives. In other words, we don't get to pick and choose what areas we're going to follow him in. He is Lord. He is God. He is the boss of me. To say yes to Jesus is to say yes to him being in charge, him being Lord. Okay, so that's the first offensive thing Jesus says, and it causes the people to grumble. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 52, then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Okay, so now we see that they're not just grumbling about his identity as God. They're, they're upset about his teaching. They're very upset. The language here is quite vivid. They have, they have grown, or excuse me, they've gone, they've gone from complaining to full-blown contempt. And let me just say, as sort of an important side note, this is exactly what complaining will do in our lives. Complaining about someone quickly transitions to a feeling of contempt for that person. We start to despise this person. John Gottman is a marriage researcher. He, started, he, he studied thousands of hours of interactions between husbands and wives, and he discovered that he could predict with 95% accuracy whether or not a marriage would end in divorce. And he identified what he calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse for a marriage. Guess what number one is? Criticism. Saying critical things about your spouse. Guess what number two is? Contempt. See, our criticism of our spouse, our complaining and criticism, criticism of our spouse turns into a despising of our spouse. This feeling of contempt settles into our heart. Gottman's research reveals that when criticism and contempt are allowed to go unchecked in a marriage relationship, that marriage is headed for disaster. And the same thing is true in our relationship with God. Our grumbling, our criticism will lead us to some spiritually harmful places. We don't think grumbling is that big of a deal. We do it all the time, right? We criticize, we grumble, we complain about someone or whatever. You know, man, this is such a part of our lives. We don't think it's a big deal, but it is a huge deal. It poisons our souls. It leads us to some really unhealthy places. So in his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis has this powerful description of where grumbling and complaining lead. Listen to this. He writes, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you're still distinct from it. 
You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But eventually, there may come a day when you can no longer stop it. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question, he writes, of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell itself unless it is nipped in the bud. What, it, what he's saying is exactly, it's exactly what we're seeing in this passage here. The people grumbling about Jesus' claim quickly turns into anger, into a feeling of contempt for him, especially regarding his statement that this bread from heaven is his flesh. So Jesus responds to that, verse 53. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. See, this is no longer simply about his identity as God. This is now about how we find life in him, that life is found in believing in him. So what does that belief look like? Well, Jesus tells us. He uses a very graphic metaphor. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. I mean, Jesus is giving us a metaphor, kind of a graphic metaphor of what it looks like to believe in him. It is to eat his flesh and drink his blood. So what does this mean? This is not describing some zombie apocalypse or whatever. No, what is he talking about here? It's kind of a disturbing metaphor, but let's under, let's try and understand what he's describing. So think about this. What, what happens in our body when we physically ingest food and drink? We're actually taking those substances into ourselves. They become a part of us. They nourish us. They feed and fuel us. So this metaphor speaks to an experiential reality. Jesus is talking about a relationship with him in which we feed on him regularly. We experience him in the core of our being. This is not some casual belief in Jesus as a legitimate historical figure or some prophet or teacher. No, Jesus is describing an experiential relationship with him. In fact, look again at verses 55 and 56. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. See, this is language of experiential connection. Jesus is describing this life of intimate connection with him. He says here, we remain in him and he remains in us. That's language he's going to talk about later in John 15. It's this remaining, abiding in him. So to continually eat of his flesh and drink of his blood is this powerful picture of a life in which we make our home in him and he in us. 
Jesus is describing this beautiful union with him, him living in us, us living in him, where, where this becomes our truest experience and identity. Jesus being at the center of who we are and all that we do. What I love about this imagery is that it speaks to the everyday stuff of our lives, bread and drink. These are things that are a regular part of our lives. In using this metaphor, Jesus is highlighting the fact that he doesn't want us, he doesn't want to just be one thing in our lives among many things in our lives. He, he doesn't want to be placed on a shelf until it's time to go to church or time to go pray or time to, you know, Bible study or whatever. Then we take him off the shelf and because now we're doing something really spiritual. No, no, no all of life is spiritual. Jesus wants us to feed on him in every experience of our lives, to welcome him into our workplace, to welcome him into our leisure time, our meals, our relationships, our finances. This, this, is, this is radical stuff. See, Jesus is not inviting us into this comfortable, safe, controlled, compartmentalized relationship with him where we bring him out for certain activities. Oh, I'm doing something spiritual, I'll bring Jesus out, you know, and then put him back, you know, in the drawer with everything else when we're done with that. No, he doesn't want to just be one interest among many of our interests. No, Jesus wants to be the center of everything. He wants us to see him as the one thing we truly need and everything else is secondary. You know, often I hear people describe their relationship with Jesus in the language of priorities, right? They'll say, Here's my prayer. Jesus is number one and family is number two and then school or work is number three or whatever. I mean, they're, they're just listing these things in their lives in terms of priority. Now, while I, I totally get that approach, I actually don't think it's the most helpful perspective to have regarding what it truly means to follow Jesus because it still compartmentalizes our lives. Jesus is one category and work is another category. What Jesus is inviting us into is a life in which he permeates every category. He speaks into and is a vital part of our work and our school and our sexuality and our relationships and our money and our dreams for the future. I mean, visually speaking, it is not a list. It is a circle where Jesus is the atmosphere. Everything in our lives is a part of the circle, and Jesus is the atmosphere. His presence and his life and his teaching permeate every part of our lives. Okay, so how is this even possible? Well, Jesus tells us, looking at verse 51, this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This is so beautiful. Jesus is saying that this kind of life with him is possible not because he is instituting a new religion with a new set of rules. No, this kind of life, intimate life with him is possible because he is going to give his life for us on the cross where his body will be given for us and his blood will be shed for us. To eat of his flesh and drink of his blood is to continually take into ourselves his sacrificial death on the cross. It is to continually realize and remember that our life is found in him. This is not about our work, our activities, our holiness. This is about his work, his effort, 
His holiness becoming ours. His life continually filling us. See, this is the gospel. That when we place our trust in Jesus' work on the cross, his life is given to us. His righteousness is imparted to us. We can't do this on our own. We have to humble ourselves and receive the life of Jesus. Now, what's so cool about this, what's so cool is to see this passage through the lens of the cross and to realize that what Jesus is describing here flesh and blood, all that. What he's describing here is symbolized in the Lord's Supper, where we symbolically eat his flesh, i.e. His, the, the bread, and we symbolically drink his blood, i.e. the juice, right? And as we ingest these elements, we are reminded afresh of the fact that Jesus is our life. He is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. He is our Lord. He is our first love. You know, it's really interesting to me that John is the only gospel of the four gospels that doesn't include a description of Jesus eating the last supper with his disciples, where Jesus says, this is my body, eat this in remembrance of me, this is my blood, drink this in remembrance of me. John doesn't include those, that doesn't include that. Why? Well, I wonder if it's because this theme is included, this theme of flesh and blood, this theme of flesh and blood is included here as a way of living it is incorporating a Lord's Supper lifestyle into our everyday lives. I mean, in this passage, Jesus is inviting people into a whole life experience with him in which his life is given to us and we choose him to be the center of our lives. Now, can we just be honest? Sometimes that's hard. It's offensive. We want Cookie Monster. We, we want a comfortable Jesus. We want a, a tame Jesus, not a Jesus who expects and deserves to be the center of everything. Okay, so how did the people respond? Verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus is inviting people into a new way of living, living by the Spirit, not the flesh, trusting in him moment by moment, rather than trusting in our own effort, our own goodness, our own religious practices, eating of his flesh, drinking of his blood, living a life of dependence and surrender to him. I love how one scholar described what Jesus asks of us. He writes this. He said, Jesus asks of us unqualified allegiance and perseverance that is grounded in grace-prompted faith unqualified allegiance that is grounded in grace prompted by faith. See, this is still about salvation by grace, but it's about so much more than just simply having our sins forgiven and getting a ticket to heaven. This is about a complete reordering of the way we're living so that Jesus is at the center of everything. It is a grace-filled invitation to a new way of life. And the question that John is clearly pointing to us to as readers is this, what are we going to do with this? How will we respond? 
I mean, did you notice how John describes the people who turned away? He calls them disciples. I mean, these are people who had expressed some belief in Jesus as the Son of God. They had said yes to following him. But at this point, as they heard Jesus describe the kind of response and life that he's asking from them, many of them turned away. They were like, it's, just, it's too hard. Jesus is asking too much. They, they wanted the blessings of God without intimacy with God. And so they decided to turn away. They decided to leave him. And what I, what I find fascinating in this story is that Jesus doesn't chase after them. Hey, hey guys, let me clarify. I didn't really mean every part of your life. You, know, you can still keep me around and periodically check in. That's totally fine. I know how busy life is. I know how things get. We're good, you know, we're good. He doesn't do that. He doesn't chase after them. He doesn't lower the bar. He doesn't change his message because he knows this is where genuine life is found. It is found in pursuing, it's not found in pursuing all these other things that the world offers us in terms of pleasure and popularity and money and things and success. No, it's not. Life is found in him, period. It's found in Jesus being at the center of our hearts, our lives, our time, our relationships, our money. See, Jesus is not content with partial surrender. He's not. He wants all of us. This is part of the journey of, of spiritual formation. I mean, when, when we first become Christian, a Christian, and it, we tend to focus on big sins, you know, lying and lust and sleeping around, addiction, you got to stop those things, right, or whatever. With Jesus' help, we want to stop those things. But over time, as, as you walk with Jesus, you realize he is interested in so much more than simply stopping these big behaviors. You know what I mean by that? He, he wants our hearts. There's a word I've been thinking about a lot recently that describes this heart journey for me. It's the word, it's the word detachment. So often I find my heart attaching to the things in this world, fame and money and success. And the other day I found myself just getting all worked up over a very small amount of money. And in that moment, I realized this has a hold on my heart. I'm attached to this in an unhealthy way. Now, this wouldn't be viewed as some big sin. I'm, you know what I mean? Some huge, it just, this is something going on in my heart. There is something here in my heart that Jesus wants surrendered to him. And so the journey Jesus is calling us to is that deeper journey that goes from obvious behavior to these deep attachments in our hearts. Jesus wants all of us. He wants all of us. Now, what happens next in this story is I think one of the most moving, beautiful responses in all of scripture. As Jesus watches hundreds, maybe thousands of people just kind of turn away from him and go back to their previous way of life, he turns to his 12 disciples, the only ones left. And he says, you do not want to leave too, do you? These are his closest friends who have left everything to follow him for two years of following him. And he asks them straight up, are you leaving too? Now, this question feels vulnerable to me. Will his close friends leave him? But it also feels resolute. Jesus is asking this question of everyone, including those closest to him. Is this too hard for you? Are you leaving too? And in that moment, 
Peter responds with a beautiful, heartfelt statement that I find myself returning to again and again. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else would we go? What, what does the world have to offer us compared to you? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. I mean, clearly Jesus is ask, asking this, the same clarifying, he's asking us the same clarifying question. Clarifying question. Are, are, are you going to follow me even when it's hard? Are you going to follow me with your whole heart? Are you going to follow me even when it's hard? Even when it means making sacrifices? Even when it means losing friends? Even if it means moving somewhere? Even when it means being passed over for a promotion? Even when it means obeying me when you really don't want to? Are you willing to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood? Letting me be the center of your life. Now, look, obviously, we're not perfect. And sometimes in a weak moment, we may choose to not follow Jesus in some area and, and doing our own thing, giving in to some temptation. But, but here's what I've noticed in my, own, in my own life. In the aftermath of choices like that, after I've given my heart to something the world offers me, after I've done that, I, I, I am once again struck by the realization of how empty these things really are. And I find my heart landing in the same place Peter found himself. Jesus, where else would I go? Where else would I go? What, what does this world have to offer me? You alone have the words of genuine life. Let's pray. So Holy Spirit, what are you saying to each one of us? in response to these words of Jesus. These are hard words. This is a hard teaching, God, but it's life-giving. And so, God, we want to quiet our heart and ask you to speak. So as we're quieting our hearts, let me just ask, are there places in your life, places in your heart, where Jesus is asking you to surrender something and to follow him, that maybe things that your heart has cultivated an unhealthy attachment towards. And maybe up to this point, you've said, no, honestly, you've turned away. Jesus, you can touch these other areas, but you're not gonna touch this area. Maybe you've said no, maybe you've grumbled, maybe you've complained. But are you willing to say yes to him, to let him be the center of every part of your life? Let's just take a few moments here and let Jesus speak to us about any areas of our lives that have not been surrendered to him. Jesus, we surrender our hearts to you, every part of us. 
where else will we go? <laughs> you alone have the words of genuine life. We look to you. We trust you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, one of the comment I want to make um, for those of you who are watching this online in our services this weekend, we're going to be partaking of the Lord's Supper um, in response to this message, which is obviously a natural uh, thing. And it's something that believers in Jesus have, per have participated in for centuries. But this passage, I want to just um, just put something in your, in your mind here, a thought in your mind here. This passage, um, it, it feels to me like it's inviting us to make the Lord's Supper a more vital part of our everyday lives. Have you ever made the Lord's Supper a part of your time alone with him or a part of your family time or a, a small group you're in or perhaps bringing it to your workstation and partaking of the Lord's Supper before the, the day begins? This is a reminder of Jesus being at the center of your life. I have never done this before um, until this past week as I was reading this passage. I've only done communion in church, you know, when others, you know, we're doing it together, which is really important. It's, it's really crucial. But I think there's an element of the Lord's Supper that John is inviting us into. I did this. I was just personal time with the Lord, me and the Lord, and I took some bread and I took some juice and I made that a part of my time with him. And as I partake of the bread, partook of the bread, I was like, Jesus, you are my, you are the bread of life to me. You are the center of my life. And then I took the juice and did the same thing. It was very powerful. And so I want to encourage you um, as you kind of finish with this message to consider finding a place and, and receiving the Lord's Supper, maybe as a family or maybe you individually, but receive the Lord's Supper in light of all that we've been learning from this passage. Thank you, guys. God bless you. Thank you for joining us for the conversation part. Uh, let's see. I have so many thoughts, but I'm, I'm kind of wanting to go back to the beginning. I know we're kind of in this tail end, which is another vibe, but it hit me when you brought up the bread and the grumbling and I had never noticed before this connection that God gave people bread in the desert and they grumbled and now he's giving Jesus the bread and people are grumbling and I was like oh my gosh it's like the same story all over again of course you're talking about the grumbling but like this order this equation there's bread given by God and then there's grumbling and I don't know, I was just sitting there for a little bit, like what, what's the deal with this pattern happening here mm -hmm. with God give, and especially it's not like a gift or a random blessing, but bread and the significance of sustenance and, you know, something very crucial that you need. So well, I don't know, I was just kind of sitting there. And and be, but too, he even said, I came from heaven uh -huh. and he compares himself to bread. The Exodus story, the uh -huh. bread from heaven, uh -huh. the substance in heaven. Um, there's a lot there. And then the this passage, I mean, I'm very curious about the time that has passed from the feeding of the 5,000. Again, it's like they're all holding hands. So yep. he did give them bread. Yes. They continue to pursue him for bread. Uh -huh. uh, kind of like... 
how day after day, God provides this bread from heaven and they grumble day after day. Well, here's a cool analogy there yeah. because do it in the Exodus story, I realized that the first time they grumble, mm. he responds by giving them bread and he doesn't punish them in any way. Mm. So they grumble, he gives them manna. But then the second time when they grumble, before going into the promised land, he says, I'm done, you know, 40 years wilderness wandering. And so it just seems to me there's a grace yeah. in the first time, feeding the 5,000, he provided, right? Even when their motives may have been selfish or whatever, there's kind mm. of this, there was a yeah. grace covering that. But then he calls them to something deeper yep. and they started grumbling about who he was. And that's that's what caused kind of the, the uh, disconnect between the in the second part of the chapter six, yep. it's verse forty-one. They start grumbling. Yeah, you know. Yep, so. absolutely. And not to be morbid, but the consequence too. Like they missed out on the promise back in the desert, missing out on the life, and then these people that turned from Jesus and missing out on the life, life and mm -hmm. salvation in Jesus. That's so interesting. Yeah, John is like continually drawing from Exodus. Right. I mean, chapter one, the whole Jesus full of grace and truth, that's directly out of Exodus 34. God reveals himself, God of compassion, and the whole tabernacling idea. I mean, John is, and you brought it out um, in, in, uh, in, in the passage on defeating the 5,000 and yeah, it's just, it's cool when you begin to see, we're going to see it next week with the Feast of the Tabernacles. And John, I mean, he's telling this story in the context of this feast and suddenly it comes alive hmm. because of all the symbolism that feast represents. Right. Same thing here. It's so fascinating. He uses that hmm. word grumbling. Mm -hmm. And it, clearly that word refers to exactly right. what happened. It brings you right back to numbers. that story. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's just fun. Like, it is fun. it's so easy like, to skim past that stuff. But it's like, man, I don't know. Like, he, yeah, here's the thing that the people are hearing. Here, here's what they're seeing, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, mm -hmm. it's just a very fun thing. Uh, you know, especially thinking about how, how this passage kind of ends of, of the idea of consumption. And because it builds up this idea of the bread. It builds up the idea of hunger, it builds up the idea of food, substance in the so, desert, right. and then he's pointing toward, towards himself. And for the Hebrew people, um, the bread biblically has been the promises of God, the bread mm -hmm. has been Torah, the God has been the path of God, the bread has been the, mm -hmm. the man in heaven, the provision. And so, yeah. so to kind of like spin it, by him saying that, and comparing himself or saying he is the bread, mm -hmm. right. he is saying he is Torah. I am the bread of life. I am the, the manna from heaven. Like he, he actually says that. Yeah, yes. I was there. Yes. Um, and that just, that should give you goosebumps for right. a, a Jewish, you know, people that are trying to, who, who are you? And they're his disciple. Like they have a desire to become him. They're following him. Mm -hmm. How do I become you? And th th then there's this idea of consumption, right? Uh, and right. there's that saying that, that 
you are the thing you eat, right? Like right. if I eat donuts every day, <laughs> I am a donut. Um, <laughs> but like that idea of so if hmm. you are going to follow me and you have and a disciple, the right. goal of a disciple is to become the person you follow. Eat right. me, build like all of me. It's uh-huh. the the bone, the flesh, the blood uh-huh. become like. There is something really beautiful because the Hebrew culture from this time is so if I just uh, so if I just understand it, right. if I just believe it, if I can mm-hmm. but he's like, no, become it. Uh-huh. I mean, I mean it's it's the whole thing. It's eat it. Yeah. Eat it. yeah. Um, it's what you said when you eat that permeate yeah. it goes inside of you. Yeah. You know, I was just thinking how we always talk about how our society is a consumeristic, a consumption culture, you know, and it's always been like, oh, that's that's bad, that's bad. And yes, it, it, it is in a negative way. But what Jesus is saying is consume me. Right. Go for it. Own it. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's not that we stop being consumers. It's what are we consuming? Yes. And comparing yes. that to how he begins this thing of like, grumbling and how the thing that brings the body to a point of grumbling you have to think of the things that it's being consumed or it's consuming Mm. um so so if you want to be whole consume me yeah because the problem with a consumeristic culture is it it fosters grumbling all the time it's empty complaining about this we're complaining about that are consumerist because we're trying to consume these find life in these things. Right. And so, oh, the line's moving too slow, or this, you know, it's just not feeding me. But when you shift and make Jesus what we're trying to consume, right. then the grumbling disappears because we're satisfied in yeah. Him. Yeah. That's cool. That's really fun. I hadn't thought about that. That's really fun. So that brings us to, you know, that I. Idea that you brought up that I thought was was very fun of how how people prioritize right. the uh, I mean like tons of people grow up in that idea right you mm-hmm. gotta put God first I mean that's mm-hmm. that that was the upbringing right. I had we put God yeah. first then there's family then there's mm-hmm. something else I don't know like you uh-huh. know it all comes comes down yeah. and but to do that I often have thought. I can't get past God then, um, or so, like there's this hard. I just can't do any of it, and and this idea that God isn't first; He's all things. Right. He's He is the atmosphere that all things exist, exist in yes. and permeates. Yeah. And do I see Him in all things? Mm-hmm. I see Him. First, he mm-hmm. is the perspective that I see the family in. He's the perspective that right. I see my Everything. my finances in. He he is the thing I see first and through. That's so. Mm-hmm. That um, that changes the ball yeah. game because then it's impossible to have something I don't see through him. Yeah. Yeah. I love that because it's it's not just. It, it expands this idea. How how is God in everything? It's this. The it's the lens through which we see all these different areas. It, it's funny. Even just this morning, KJ and I were talking about all the different hats that we wear, and there is such wisdom 
there is wisdom in categorizing, like here's this one hat and here's where I am. This is the other hat. This is, and I won't worry about this hat and I will be all in on this. That will be taken care of later. There's wisdom in organizing life, but how none of that applies to when it comes to our spiritual life, because that's right. who we are, it's who God is. So I was contrasting yeah, that conversation we had with this. You know, I hadn't thought about this, but there's an interesting, I think, a connection to when the goal is for Jesus to be all of our lives, right? And But sometimes there are practices that we do, we set aside a quiet time for him, not so that, okay, I'm being spiritual now, and now I'm done with my quiet time. I'm going to put Jesus on the shelf, and I'm going to go right. about my day. We do that practice so that we're saturated with him, yeah. and our mind and heart are focused on him. So then we bring him into the things of the day. Right. And so it's not, I know sometimes in that list thing, my priority is Jesus. That means I have a quiet time every day, which is good, but it's it's when we're using that to fuel the whole thing, right. you know what I mean? I was just thinking of giving mm. the same way. Like the tithe principle in scripture, all of it's God's. Yes. It's not 10% God's, it's all of it is God's. But the tithe, practicing mm-hmm. that actually reminds my heart that all of it is his, yep. mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think that same thing, ha- yeah. Uh, I like I that swear. idea that, that I forgot. Um, the, the, I, I Forgot it is. And a bunch of these practices that person I do, it isn't to invite him in. It's to say, I forgot to be here. Yeah. And and like he's here. Like he he, he isn't apart from this, but I forgot he is. And so I'm Mm. I'm centering, I'm I'm showing up in a place that he's already very active. Yep. Right. And you're tuning your awareness yeah. into that. Yeah. Um, because otherwise we end up with a life, oh yeah, Jesus is just a part of everything, but we're not consciously making ourselves aware of that. And I think what Jesus is doing here is more and more that conscious awareness of him being our bread and the blood and that we he's our life and we're drawing, consuming him. Throughout, throughout the, the day. day. Yeah. Because right. to only, to separate your day, day out and say, here's, okay, I'll say even here's two hours, I'm going to sit and be quiet, be with God. That means there's 22 hours that he isn't. Right. <laughs> and so there's a problem there. Yes. Yeah. And, but if the perspective is, right. I'm going to begin the day having 25 s- s- seconds mm. <laughs> saying, God, I'm all in right now. I see you yep. and you're with me. Mm-hmm. And this, it, it's yeah. like, then there's a whole other ball game happening. Yeah. Right. And I, I don't know. Like, yeah. it's I love that. Because there is something about the breath that's ongoing. There is something about the blood. It's flowing. It's this, like, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yep. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I yeah I love this clarifying conversation here that it's not about making it a priority or being intentional in our times with him, but the problem is when we, okay, now I'm done and put him aside and instead yep. bringing the I'm awareness. So that's time. now I'm gonna go to my day. Right. Just, so that's good. Yeah, clarification. Mm-hmm. But like, don't you think like that? That is the point of discipleship. It's I keep my eyes on Jesus. Yes. And if I, for, for a point second, look away, oh no. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, and like, so it's like that I 
idea. Like, people say, is it okay for a, to have a beer? Is it okay to have a cigarette? I'm sure it's okay. But if I have a beer, I can't be as in tune as I would hope to be if I keep my eyes on Jesus. So is it helpful in pursuit? Like, like those are the things that I think about. Like, in the pursuit of the face of Jesus. I don't know. I'm, I'm totally Please not tell about. us that we can't have a beer. You definitely you have just beers. I'm a bunch just, of people. No. <laughs> I drink beer. But it's the idea. If I go and pray for someone, I can't drink coffee beforehand because I don't feel like I can think clearly. And like I have caffeine and like all things are pointing towards our pursuit of his face. And so then it becomes so fun because it comes down to the food I eat, the the things I drink, Mm -hmm. the... The energy I have, mm-hmm. do I expend the energy I have? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going in. But, but if someone's going to ask for help at 4 p.m., has the energy I expelled? So is it prepared for them? Right. Um, how have I, how am I taking care of myself so that I can be the hands and feet of Jesus? And that I think is embodied in the, here's my body, here's my blood. Mm-hmm. So if yeah. you're going to follow me, mm-hmm. become me. Yep. I think that's why the, the picture then now bringing to the end of your message, the, the eating of the bread, the drinking of the blood, and I think this recalibrating, even if I am exhausted at the end of the day, even if I did have too much coffee right. or a drink right. or whatever, you know, kind of coming back to that place, because how many times have we all experienced this? Like, God, I got nothing, mm-hmm. you know, and that's good. Please come and then there's through. The outpouring. And then yeah. You, yeah, and that's the source of life, and that's the feeling, that's the everything that I need, my sustenance and my re reawaken and it's his power in us. So I think that's encouraging because it's not, even though there are choices for us to make, it's not yeah. completely in my hand. It's that I think that's what encourages me a lot to like what you're saying. This, it's where life is found and, it, and calling on that, drawing mm-hmm. from that in all these different moments, which it's so easy to forget, right? And having a hard time at home or with the kids or whatever, you know, how many times that hold on, <laughs> let me go back to life here because I'm, in here I'm lost. Yep. Yeah. I think there's a, I was touching on a little bit, but uh, this idea of a, the journey of spiritual formation, um, I think there is something there where it's like, I, I think we have this surrender all to Jesus and that's kind of a continual message. But I, th- I wonder if in over the decades when we follow Christ, he he starts going deep. He goes deeper, you know. And he's going after you, Alan. You're trusting in this, and uh, ten years ago I wouldn't even thought about it, and now all of a sudden I'm realizing it. And so it's it's this deeper journey of not just oh I surrender all. It's that's true, but I think he's uncovering the further we walk with him, he uncovers our hearts some yeah. deeper motivations that are not. But when we first became a Christian, we weren't there. It was sure. like, I got to stop doing these things or, you know, whatever, that, that kind of idea of big sins. 
<clears throat> I didn't know what language to use there. It's not like they're worse sins, but you know what I mean? They're obvious behavioral things. But man, mm-hmm. that doesn't ever stop. That call to follow him, right. it just gets deeper in our hearts. Suddenly we see, oh my goodness, my motive here in meeting with these people is all about me. You know, you start to see these things and it's another opportunity to surrender mm. even more deeply. I think there's something that's very cool about the grace of God in that because there is that celebratory at the very beginning. It's like, man, you know, he loves me. He loves me. And yeah. like there, there's kind of almost this like, yeah. man, this is amazing. And, and there's that feeling of like everything is okay. And the, the, the further you go, I think the goal is the total depravity. Mm-hmm. It's the like total dependence on him. Yeah, the, how, the, yeah. But it's I think of who I had been, mm-hmm. and then the journey I've become is like, oh my, <laughs> you know. But I'm. It's like oh, and just seeing the truth of the human heart. And how many yeah. people stop? That's what's so sad in this story. How many people stop at some point in their journey because it's just too. It's hard to too much. challenge, too much, but it's where life is found. It's like he's going deeper, but we're like. But don't you think because mm-hmm. it's, it gets to the point that it actually applies to something physical. <laughs> it's mm. kind of up in this. It's, it's kind of like, yeah, I can understand this. I'm excited about you. Mm. It's, it's this spiritual belief. And then it's like. Uh-oh. It's time to actually uh-huh. become my something. It's time to change. Whatever. It's time to apply it. And like, let go of control. Yeah, I have this box for spirituality, and that belongs over here. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the, then he began to say, "All of it, please." <laughs> and they're like, "No, all of it, please." Yeah, yeah. so you know? true. Yeah, mm-hmm. so fun. <laughs> I kind of want to sit there. All of it, please. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well. Okay. Well, that's it, I think, for now. Thanks for being here. And I hope the conversation can continue. And there's lots of questions that that you have um, that inspire great conversations between God and you. So go and be blessed.